Good afternoon and welcome to this week's edition of The Wrap. I'm Travis Fain, one of WRAL's state government reporters. And I'm Brian Anderson, another one of WRAL's state government reporters. And we, uh, you know, I think a lot of people have been on vacation, but of course the news takes no vacations. Uh, so even though it was kind of a slow week in North Carolina politics, there was enough to talk about. We had runoff elections. Uh, we had this whole saga between the attorney general and Wake County's district attorney and uh, Forsyth County's district attorney and who who did or did not lie in a campaign ad two years ago and whether or not there needs to be a federal lawsuit on it. But I want to start, Brian, you uh, unearthed a little something on the lieutenant governor uh, this week. Yeah, so I came across five unpaid tax bills uh, in, from the lieutenant governor, Mark Robinson. He's a Republican, the highest Republican executive office holder in the state, and second in line if Cooper died, left the state, uh, was unable to serve, was removed from office, Robinson would become the, the governor there. Robinson's also a candidate uh, expected to run in the 2024 gubernatorial race. So I came across five unpaid tax bills in Guilford County. Four were under his name. One was under his wife, Yolanda Hill. And uh, I asked Robinson about it, and he did not know about these bills. Um, that was the first he said he was hearing of it. I handed him the papers, and the next day he paid all of those bills. Yeah, and look, it happens, right? Think things get missed. Uh, sometimes taxes get missed. I, it was the way he responded to it. Uh, what was the exact quote? Something of the, along the lines of, uh, I'm not good at math. If I'm the one doing the taxes in my family, I'm going to jail. Yeah. So his wife handles the finances. I'm trying to pull it up right now. But yeah, he was saying uh, his exact words were, quote, when you start talking about taxes, if I'm the guy doing them, then I'm going to jail. I'm not very good at math, end quote. So those were his words saying that, you know, the wife handles the finances as far as the paperwork. Uh, I talked to Hill, his wife, and confirmed that she does indeed handle the paperwork. And she told me that she had just found out about it after we had reached out at WRAL. Uh, so this wasn't something she knew about either. Um, and, you know, it's one thing to have an unpaid tax bill, but five, dating back to 2006 and as recently as 2018. So it, it spans quite a length of time. Hill told me that two of those vehicles in question were totaled and one was sold. Uh, so that explains some of what had happened there. Yeah. And again, I just, if you want to be governor of a state that, you know, is a what $60 billion a year business, if you include the federal money, I don't know that I'd tell people that you're inept enough at doing taxes that you fear jail time. I, I mean, I'm sure he was joking at least a little bit there. Yeah, it was but. a little tongue in cheek, but I mean, it does come on the heels of some serious questions because, you know, he's had three bankruptcy filings in the past, um, 1998, 1999, 2003. They stemmed from uh, an old furniture business that he, he worked at and left uh, called Klausner. And then there was also Precious Beginnings, which was this childcare center that he and his wife had started uh, that sort of went under. So that was sort of the origin of their financial hardships. Uh, and it took them a while to get past that, to pay those off, to get through those turbulent times. And Robinson's point of view today is that those experiences actually make me more qualified because I have 
signed a paycheck. I do understand financial hardships. I know what not to do. Uh, I can be more careful with the state's purse strings because I've learned from those experiences. And so if anything, people should have faith and, and be reassured by my lived experiences. And he would also say that, you know, the moment I found out about these bills, I paid them off and that was just being responsible. Yeah, I also remember some problems uh, on the campaign finance end in his lieutenant governor's campaign uh, back in 2020. Of course, he was a first-time candidate uh, at the time. Uh, speaking of the 2024 governor's race, of course, we all expect the, the lieutenant governor to run for governor. We also expect Attorney General Josh Stein uh, to run on the other side, Stein, a Democrat, Robinson, a Republican. And the 20... <laughs> This this thing's a mess, Brian, and I it, it, it's classic. We can't stop term. talking about 2020 or 2024, but we're not talking about the 2022 midterms. <laughs> and that maybe that's on us. I, I, but th this is this is such a North Carolina thing, and that there's literally a federal lawsuit. You look at it and you think, what? What do we need? Do we do we need all this? But so in, in the 2020 campaign for Attorney General, Josh Stein's campaign ran an ad against Jim O'Neill, his Republican opponent. Uh, about whether or not O'Neill's office had appropriately handled rape kits, whether they were sitting on the shelf. And I believe it was a response to a to an ad that O'Neill had run against Stein on this same issue. It was a big issue in the attorney general's race. And not everything in that ad was was it had it had a sexual assault victim or survivor or or, or some representative of that community saying that O'Neill had basically had 1,500 rape kits uh, left on the shelves, which can be forcefully pushed back on. There's just sheer authority of whether he even has the ability to have a say in that whole process. And there were legitimate factual concerns with that ad. Uh, but it goes back to this century-old law, basically, about lying in ads. And it seems like it's questionable to enforce uh, lies and ads. I think that would be a, a slippery slope and you'd be keeping the fact checkers and the lawsuits all busy there. Yeah, O'Neill pushed, pushed for an actual investigation into this. This the, seems like the State Board of Elections and the, uh, the SBI, I believe, were, were involved in that. And uh, Wake County District Attorney Lauren Freeman recused herself, but an ADA in her office was pursuing the case. And according to reporting by Axios and WBTV, was close to going to a grand jury uh, to potentially have Stein indicted on what would have been kind of a mid-level misdemeanor. This is a misdemeanor two under the law if you knowingly lie in a campaign ad. I think that that the ad the law goes back to 1931, and we're not available. We're not aware of it ever being prosecuted. Axios and WBTV also had in their story earlier this week a memo from the State Board of Elections saying that uh, enforcing the law might be uh, unconstitutional. Uh, something they didn't focus on that I thought was interesting in that same mem uh, memo, though, from 2019, was uh, the, the person who reviewed it for the Board of Elections said that it would not be prudent to, quote, adopt a blanket policy of declining to enforce this statute on constitutional grounds. So saying even though there are questions about the constitutionality, probably a good idea to go forward on various uh, inquiries into whether things are true or not. But that if you do go forward, quote, the case should be a strong one. It should be clear that the candidate knew his statements were false or that he recklessly disregarded the truth, which leads me to a question. What level of smoking gun 
in the Stein campaign exists for this to have actually been close to going to a grand jury before Stein's campaign filed a federal lawsuit and got a judge to stop that process uh, because the law may be unconstitutional. That's that's one of my questions here. Why why would we have gotten this far down the road unless there's something really interesting? Yeah, I mean, Stein seemed to want to, he portrayed it initially as he wanted to get the word out there to the public and uh, kind of dismiss this. But the news that, you know, there was some movement on this case seems to kind of raise some questions about whether he actually wanted to make it public or, or you know, whether he felt he needed to. And what calculus did did they go through where, you know what, some of the alternatives are worse than multiple media stories this summer about this federal lawsuit that I've filed in order to stop enforcement of this law. I, I, I don't know the answers to those questions. And it, the, the whole thing seems like a mountain out of a molehill, except, you know, a lot of people are making it a mountain. So, and a lot of them are Democrats. So not, not the only uh, Stein courtroom drama. We, we know that uh, there's some court filings due, uh, I think by the middle of August, over this 20-week abortion ban that's being considered whether or not it should be reinstated in light of the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade. And so for folks who, who aren't familiar, the law of the land in North Carolina is that abortion is still legal today. However, there was a law that said abortion is outlawed after 20 weeks of pregnancy. Uh, and that law was basically halted and prevented from being implemented by a court. And so now there's an effort to get it unfrozen and let it become the law of the land. The issue is that Josh Stein is representing the state in this case. And there's a, a good point that someone could make that you're the attorney general. Your job is to defend state laws, whether you agree with them or not. That's just your job description. Uh, and you don't have to personally litigate this. You have lawyers with your staff that will argue this in a courtroom. Uh, and so he has said that he wouldn't defend this law being implemented, basically saying that this issue is too important. Uh, people need access to abortion. And so there's been some developments from Moore and Berger on that front as well to try and make sure that they can have a good forceful defense of the law being implemented. Yeah, Speaker of the House Tim Moore and Senate Pro Tem Phil Berger filed uh, an amicus brief in that case. It's pending before Judge Austin uh, on the federal bench here in North Carolina. But it, it, here's the bottom line on the 20-week or post-20-week abortion ban. That is almost certainly going to go back into law uh, in North Carolina. The judge ha has indicated that he will do it himself uh, if no one argues for it. So whether Stein wants to argue for it or not, uh, I, I expect that to go in, into effect. And then we'll see whether district attorneys around the state, you know, how they react to that, whether they enforce it or not, I would expect them to do so. Abortions post 20 weeks are really rare. They're unusual. Almost by definition, if you've carried uh, a child 20 weeks, you know, five months into a pregnancy, you are planning to uh, give birth to that child. 
Uh, so something has almost always gone exceedingly wrong if, if, if an abortion is chosen after five months. And the state law that we're talking about that will go into effect, it has exceptions for medical emergencies. Um, so we will kind of wait and see how, how all that sorts out. I, everyone, of course, is uh, posturing on abortion as an issue because it is going to be such a big issue in the November elections and probably elections uh, after that, as as well it should be. That is an issue that uh, has always inspired people uh, and, and determined there are a lot of people who vote on that issue alone or uh, with that issue high in mind. And Speaking I got to add, I got to add one more thing quick. This is we polled on this at WRAL News last month. And a majority of North Carolinians do support this this law, this 20-week abortion ban. So that's where the public is at on this issue. But that was before the Supreme Court's ruling, so maybe that could have swayed public opinion. Uh, but this is certainly going to be an animating issue that both sides want to make. And I guess I should also mention that, you know, we've asked Republican leaders, all right, let's say you get a supermajority in the November elections, takes Roy Cooper's veto off the table, you can do what you want. On abortion and other issues as well. Uh, Senator Phil Berger, he, he basically has said, look, I think that abortion should be allowed for some period of time and then stop after, you know, at some point into the pregnancy. He has not given timetables. He has said that he wants uh, state senators to consider this issue, to talk to people, uh, because obviously something is likely to come, uh, a, some sort of legislation after the November elections. Uh, Speaker of the House Tim Moore this week said that he favors a, a fetal heartbeat uh, standard. So once there is a detectable heartbeat in the fetus, that is when he feels like roughly uh, abortion should no longer be legal. But as he would also know, you know, he is one vote. Uh, and as you said, I mean, the, the status quo or what's about to be the status quo, because the 20 week abortion ban is probably going to go back into effect, polls relatively well. I Will this be as hard fought an issue in North Carolina as it will be in other states, I don't know. Uh, but of course, a lot of that will be decided if Republicans indeed get a supermajority in the November elections, because otherwise it's a Republican majority in the General Assembly and then a Democratic governor who's just going to veto uh, any new restrictions they pass. Our colleague, An Andy, uh, he had pa Paul Spey, as he's known, he had a very good story out for a fact check last week that I'd point people to, there was this question of whether this bill that was introduced in the legislature like 18 months ago would suddenly become law. And it called for capital punishment uh, for people who get abortions, basically, if I'm understanding correctly. Uh, and this bill did not get a single committee vote. It was introduced by lawmakers who are are, are fairly ideologically extreme. And um, that, that bill is just not going to happen. Moore and Berger have said they're not considering legislation on abortion this year. Uh, next year, that's where that fight's going to be. So there's been a lot of, of concerns out there, but you got to put the facts first on, on that one. That bill is, is not, not, has never been seriously considered. In runoffs on Tuesday, Brian, you did something about turnout. And of course, Primary turnout is often not great. And when you have a second primary, uh, because no one wins the first time out, uh, even less so. I'm, I'm going to wager that most people seeing this are going to say, what what election happened on Tuesday? That's the case with, with most people here. I mean, turnout was abysmal. Uh, this is 
there were three elections in Wake County. There were two uh, for city council in Cary, town council, I should say, in Cary. And then those are considered runoffs because they're nonpartisan races. There was a second primary for uh, the Wake County Democratic Sheriff's primary, and that was between uh, Gerald Baker, Willie Rowe. Rowe had defeated the incumbent sheriff there, and he'll advance against Donnie Harrison, the Republican, in the November election. So that was pretty much the news that unfolded there. But experts I, I talked to who looked at these low participation numbers, I think there were a little more than like 10,000 early votes cast and absentee votes cast before election day out of 625,000 people who could have voted. That's just abysmal. And the experts I've spoken to say, we should really question our system. Some people will vote three or four times in an election year. That's hard for a political scientist to keep track of, let alone an average North Carolina voter uh, and even a highly engaged one. So I think it, it raises some serious questions here about how voting is conducted in the state and whether you can truly get representative uh, people in office when you have very few people voting. Yeah, I, I live in Cary and uh, I will say that on the two two town council seats, one incumbent one, and then one challenger one. So it seems to me that that's indicative of at least the people who voted were were, were focused on the issue and look at because I mean otherwise you would expect complete turnover or just both incumbents to win. Speaking of voting, uh, people who have been released from prison on a felony uh, but have not yet finished their probation can now register to vote in North Carolina for the November election. Now, this is a kind of a long-running court case, the argument being it has, it has long been in North Carolina that you could not vote uh, if you had a felony record until you had fully completed your sentence, so not just being released from prison if you were in prison, but also uh, finishing probation, parole. Uh, there's about 56,000 people that are in that window. They're still in probation or parole, and they can now register to vote because of a federal lawsuit. That lawsuit has not run its full course, though, uh, and so it is possible that that ends up changing. But right now, heading into the November elections, uh, felons uh, in that situation can register to vote. I have only seen efforts from the left. Uh, this lawsuit, of course, came from the left to register folks to vote. Uh, they're or some active voter drives, if that's happening on the right. Uh, I, I have not heard about it. Maybe it is. But I will say, having dealt with this issue in Virginia, I would not just assume that this population votes for Democrats. Uh, I, again, in the heading into the 2016 election in Virginia, this issue was very hot. And I would hear from people all the time, so many people that, 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 that this applied to, that I started asking who they were voting for. There are a lot of Trump votes. A lot of folks who wanted to vote for Trump, uh, but were felons and couldn't register to vote. So it, there is a new population out there that can be uh, registered to vote. And in an election year that where you could have some competitive races, I'm, I'm thinking particularly the 13th congressional district, the Senate races, at least polling fairly tightly. Uh, you know, you never know what can make a difference. It can. Sherry Beasley lost the state Supreme Court chief justice race by 401 votes in 2020. Like it doesn't take a lot to sway some statewide elections. Uh, and there's also another question of whether the Green Party will be allowed to be on the ballot. There's a state board of elections hearing uh, coming up on that. The problem is for the Green Party that a deadline has already passed. So they're trying to get a court 
to basically recognize the Green Party on the ballot. Uh, they have some interesting bedfellows on this with the Republican Party who is also wanting that. Presumably this would be bad for Democrats to have a Green Party candidate on there. Uh, but it also raises some questions because you have a 3-2 uh, Democratic-led State Board of Elections, and it voted along that 3-2 line back last month to not let the Green Party on the ballot. And so there's been some concerns that, you know, you have uh, one major political party determining the fate of an outside party. Uh, and it's, in, in an election year, you never know what can make the difference. Uh, so it'll be interesting to watch and see how that plays out. Yeah, I'll update people quickly on Medicaid expansion. Not a ton of movement. Uh, basically, the Speaker of the House and, and Berger, the leader in the Senate, saying this week that they're they're not talking that much. Uh, there is real, even though both sides have backed some sort of expansion plan, uh, they are no closer to coming up with a compromise that would move forward. Uh, DHHS, so the Cooper administration, the Department of Health and Human Services had a report out earlier this week that said, come September, if we have not expanded Medicaid, uh, the amount of federal money will be go we would forego per month, per month is upwards of $500 million. So obviously uh, big, big money. Uh, Senator Berger pointed the finger at hospitals and said they're intransigence on some other regulatory rollbacks uh, certificate of need reform, if people are familiar with that, is what's holding things up. He said that there are a number of things holding things up, but it's the hospitals, number one, they're intransigence. The hospitals, of course, I mean, look, it's not lost on anybody that Berger was the number one opponent, self-described number one opponent of Medicaid expansion up until like four months ago. So, you know, I, I, things are not moving forward there, but perhaps they will. I think there is some confidence that perhaps not by the end of the year, but uh, early next year, uh, they all kind of come to some agreement to expand Medicaid in the state. That that it looks more like a win than an if, but until it, it it's further along, I think you have to, to to lean toward if. Yeah, I mean, this has been the biggest policy priority, arguably, for Democratic Governor Roy Cooper since he was first sworn in in 2017, and here you are five years and change later, and it still hasn't gotten done. Uh, you had. Medicaid expansion, maybe a Medicaid light bill in the House and a Medicaid expansion bill in the Senate passed. So you have both political parties at least moving the ball forward on this. So like you said, it might be a question of of when rather than if, but you know, people thought sports gambling was a sure thing. So nothing's a safe bet here in North Carolina politics. Absolutely. Uh Briefly, uh, Tim Longest here in Wake County will be on the ballot in House District 34. He replaces uh, retired uh, State Representative Greer Martin, who left uh, to take a job at the Pentagon, but was already uh, had already be been become the Democratic nominee uh, in House District 34 in Wake County. So Tim Longest uh, was selected. That's actually the local Democratic Party's second choice. Uh, the previous one, after 11 days, said, you know, I, I don't want to do this. It was an um, Anthony Scaramucci long campaign. <laughs> but it'll, uh, so it'll be longest uh, run in there. He is a clerk in the uh, state Supreme Court. And I think that's all I got. Ditto. It was, it was not as much of an active week, but we certainly found uh, some interesting tidbits that came out. 
Yeah, we will find something to talk about uh, no matter what. I think people can depend on that. Thank you for listening. We hope you have a pleasant uh, weekend. And uh, we'll get you caught up on what we can next week here on The Wrap.